0: The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Kaylee and I, sometime over the past year, caught a documentary on Hulu called SOM. S-O-M-M. And this is a, a documentary that follows four sommeliers who are worth master sommelier exam. Now, that uh, uh, maybe means nothing to you. It meant nothing to me uh, when we started the documentary. But a, a master sommelier is one of the world's foremost wine experts. And the, the exam... There's an exam that a, a, a sommelier has to pass in order to, to receive his master or her master sommelier diploma. And it, it turns out that the exam that they need to pass has one of the lowest pass rates on the planet. And it, it's really pretty incredible. Just So you, you, you follow these... Aspiring master sommeliers and spend a lot of time, of course, tasting wine. And listen, just by smelling the wine and swirling it a little bit in the glass and then taking a few sips, a master sommelier can tell you about the structure of a glass of wine, about the, the body of that glass of wine. They can even, with Relative um, accuracy, they can even tell you about the alcohol content of that glass of wine, but but it, it doesn't stop there. They can give you a full breakdown of the flavor profile. What fruits are they picking up? Maybe, maybe it's a hand of leather that they're tasting. Or or wood. Maybe it has an oaky taste. Um maybe it maybe it tastes a little bit like dirt one might say which is which is a, a real thing apparently apparently some wine tastes like dirt and this is a good thing <laughs> apparently um I, I remember one of the one of the the four um said that and so i, I think it's it's it's, it's like cool, apparently as a sommelier, to be like novel and to come up with like new flavors and smells that people haven't thought of. And so one uh, said that some wines were like a freshly opened can of tennis balls. I don't know. So that they can tell you about the flavor profile, but it doesn't stop there. They can tell you about the style of the wine. Which, you know, makes sense. You know, red wines white wines. Maybe it's a Chardonnay over here or Merlot over here. But they go even further. They can tell you about the vintage of the wine. They can tell you again with some pretty impressive precision when that bottle of wine was made. They can tell you what region the bottle of wine came from. And by the way, like a region is not France. France is a country. Um, they can tell you what region in France that a bottle of wine came from. Not only that, they can tell you what sub-region a bottle of wine came from. They can tell you about the climate where the grapes came from that went into that bottle of wine. And then, after all of that, they can nail the exact date and name of that bottle of wine. They, they can actually name the wine that they're drinking. Now, let's do a little compare and contrast. When I'm drinking wine, it doesn't quite go like that, right? So, I pick up a glass of wine, swirl it around a little bit, got these little runny things going down the side, smell it. it just, you just have to make it look like you know what you're doing. You smell it, give it another swirl. Take a little drink, and usually my wine tasting goes something like this: I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting notes of something fruity, and and that's about that's about where it stops. And so, if I were to guess as to the, the name of this wine, I'm guessing it's a a 2021 Barefoot, maybe uh, from the somewhere in the state of California, right? Um, and this is, what it's, this is what it's like for me to taste wine. Now, now, what's the difference between me and a master sommelier? Well, these master sommeliers, they, they, they train and they study. The, the only thing I've ever seen like the way that they study, the way that they train, is friends of mine that I know that, that went to med school. And this is how they studied in med school. They had shoeboxes full of note cards, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of note cards. And so they would spend hundreds and hundreds, thousands of hours studying. They, and, and, and of course, they, they would do what? What do they have to do? They have to drink a lot of wine. They have to drink a lot of wine. And, and look, as, so as I'm thinking about this series on joy, uh, and by the way, what, what part of this Advent series on joy is that we're, we're adding a, a seventh core value to our existing six. And this core value is that we fight for joy. We we seek to experience joy in the midst of suffering, worship, and life. And I was thinking about that first word in the series, suffering, and and what it looks like and what it it means to to experience joy and to seek out joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of just the pain of life, life in a fallen world. And Honestly, I think it's a little bit like wine tasting. Sometimes it's difficult to pick out the notes of joy when we are just overwhelmed by the the fallenness and the pain that is a part of our world and that is coming at us every day. And so what I, I want to unpack this morning is this, that the gospel makes joy possible. The gospel makes joy accessible to us always, even in the midst of difficult times, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of loss, even in the midst of suffering. This is the, this is the glory of the good news that we, that we proclaim around here, and this is the, this is the glory of our Savior, he is for us our source of joy, this deeply rooted, deep-seated knowledge and understanding and experience of his goodness and his provision for us. And so I, I want to spend the time that we have looking at these three brief verses in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And so if you're not there, go ahead and open up there now, First Thessalonians chapter 5, and let's just, let's do the work of a sommelier today. Let, let's do a little bit of tasting. Let's do a little bit of training of our palate. Let, let's do some studying. Well, Verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 5 is a, is a short one. It's a really short one. In fact, it's only two words in the English Standard Version. It's simply, rejoice always. Rejoice always. If you have an NIV, it renders the verse in three words, be joyful always. The King James Version says rejoice evermore. Regardless of how you want to phrase that, the point is really clear. that This is an imperative. It's a command. We're commanded by the New Testament to rejoice. We're commanded to be rejoiceful, to be joyful. Now, admittedly, I think that this is one of those verses that we typically read over fairly quickly. <laughs> we read over it fairly quickly. We, we don't always give it much thought. And it's also one of those verses that, look, it's, it's, it's very clear what it's saying here, isn't it? But even though it's, it's very clear in what it says, we tend to doubt both its meaning and its practical application to our lives. Like, look, I give a, in my time as a Christian, I've given a fair amount of time and energy and thought to Jesus' command to deny myself, to take up my cross and to follow him. Maybe you have as well. I've given a lot of time and thought to Paul's exhortation to husbands to love their wives like Jesus loved the church. I've, I've molded that one over. I've chewed on that one a lot. I've, I've given a, a lot of time as a pastor to Paul's words to the Ephesian elders when he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. But look, this verse, this command, admittedly, I've been guilty of just reading right past it. And and again, maybe that's true of you too. Now it's probably important here to point out that this is a this is a plural command. Remember, Paul here, as he pens this letters, this letter to the church in Thessalonica, he's he's writing to an entire body of believers. He's not just writing to not writing to just you or to just me. And so there's a there's a corporate component to the command. Not only are you to rejoice always, but we are to rejoice always. And, of course, the the church, the collective body of the church is made up of individual members as well. So that there's, there's obviously an individual component to this command. But either way, if you really stop to think about this short verse, this really pointed command... If you really stop to think about it, yeah, maybe you would agree with me. This is a pretty audacious command, isn't it? It's pretty audacious of Paul to command this church, to command us sitting here today to be rejoiceful, to rejoice always. Because look, this side of Jesus' return, our gladness is always mixed with sadness. And this is, this is the tension that we embrace and this is the tension that we're wading through in the midst of Advent. This is what this season is. Where we live between the two comings of Christ. We're after the first coming, but the second coming isn't yet here. And look, the, the Christmas time, the holiday season is a perfect illustration of this. It's a perfect illustration of this tension. You see, for some of us... Christmas time is one of the most exciting, joy filled times of the year. And we love everything about it. We are sold out for all things Christmas. We love the music. We love the decorations. We love the food. We love the gifts. We love the sweaters. We love the time with family. We love it all. Give me more. But then there are some in our midst that would say look this this is a time of year that i dread because this season this month is the lowest part of my year every year like a clock without exception for some of us a holiday season it's a it's a time of loneliness or it's a time filled with conflict with our family that we're forced to spend time with, maybe. Reminds us of loved ones that we've lost. It, it marks the beginning of our annual battle with seasonal depression and anxiety. It means the weather's getting colder, which means that our chronic physical pain is just gonna get more painful. And look, both of these Both of these extremes and a lot of folks in the middle, they they coexist in our body. Right now as we sit here, these two sides, they they coexist in the room. You see, Two Pillars Church, in a fallen world, our gladness is always mixed with sadness. I'm reminded of of the time when we learned that Kaylee was pregnant with with, with Callan, our oldest child. And we were so excited, we were overjoyed and couldn't wait to tell people and yet we had multiple friends who were very close to us that we know who were, they were struggling to get pregnant. Joy, gladness mixed with sadness. How audacious then for Paul to give the Thessalonians Or a church like us, this command to rejoice always. Honestly, how is this even possible? Look, it's no less audacious on an individual level. Rejoice always. This means that we're commanded to rejoice, not just when things are going well in our lives, not just when we're happy, not just when we're content. We've unpacked it already that we're not talking about happiness here. We've made a distinction between happiness on the one hand and a a, a deep sense of joy on the other hand, a sense of joy that isn't tied to circumstance. But look, this, this means that we're exhorted here to rejoice when we're sad. This means that we're, we're also exhorted here to rejoice in the midst of grief and in the midst of loss, in the midst of pain. We're commanded here to rejoice in the midst of relational turmoil. Some of us are sitting here now and, and we are experiencing and sitting in the consequences of our own sin. and just the various ways that that might be playing out in our lives, and yet we're, we're called to rejoice. It means that we're, we're called to rejoice when others sin against us and hurt us and cause us harm. This means that we're, we're called to rejoice even when the doctor says, it's cancer or it's incurable. Paul is calling us to rejoice even when our child tells us, look, mom, dad, I don't believe that stuff anymore. He's calling us to rejoice when we're going to work another day at a job that we hate, working for a boss that we can't stand. And Paul says, rejoice always, Christian. And I think if we're honest, this is why we breeze past First Thessalonians 5.16. It's, it's one of those, oh, wouldn't that be nice verses? It's one of those, well, that, that's great for you, but that hasn't been my experience verses. And especially if you find yourself in the midst of a difficult season of life, Experiencing even just one of the things that we outlined above. Wrestling with negative emotions, sorrow, hurt, loneliness, shame. Joy can often feel completely out of reach. And the command to rejoice always can feel impossible. But again, here's what I want us to see in this, even in this single verse this morning, this command that Paul gives to the church in Thessalonica and to us as well, it is possible. You see, implied here in the command to rejoice always is the hope that we can, in fact, rejoice always. Paul wouldn't tell the the church to rejoice always if joy was only available to them sometimes. Paul wouldn't tell the church to rejoice always if joy wasn't available to them at all. You see, Paul isn't sending us on a hopeless goose chase. Joy isn't the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's real, and it's available to us today because of Jesus, who is the very source of our joy. Christian, this is is good news. This is good news. This is the good news that we celebrate this Advent season because of the gospel, because Jesus came, condescended, lived, died, rose, ascended, reign, rules, and because he's promised to come back, joy is available to you, and joy, it's available to me too in the midst of suffering and sadness and anger and loss and pain, in the midst of loneliness and disappointment, fear and shame, it's available to us today. But look, just like wine tasting, sometimes, especially when we're overwhelmed by some of these things, when we're overwhelmed by the pain and the difficulty of life, it's, it's difficult, it's, it's complicated, and, and we might struggle to pick up the notes of joy. And in particular, I think that there are three ways that our our joy-seeking in the midst of difficult times can go wrong. Three, Three ways in which joy can be distorted in our lives. And so let's talk about distortions of joy in the midst of pain. The first distortion is this, that we use joy as a means of escape from pain. Joy as a means of escape from pain. According to this way of thinking, joy leads us on a path out of our pain. Joy leads us on a path out of our sadness. Or, to the extent that we are experiencing joy, our pain and our sadness will lessen. In this case, the ultimate end or goal of joy then is merely to bring an end to the pain. Just make me less sad. Make me less lonely. And so, if we're sad, then we might go to our favorite psalm, which is one that, if if we're honest, just kind of evokes a particular emotional response, kind, kind of on the surface. God's Word becomes a shot in the arm. It isn't working deep change in our souls, it's not giving us a true and settled sense of joy. Instead, it, we allow it to just work on the surface, addressing only the symptoms of our pain. In this case, for example, sadness. And unfortunately, the effects wear off, don't they? When we use joy as, merely as a means of escape from our pain, the, the effects wear off and we have to go back for a booster shot when the the symptoms of our pain return. Another way that we do this, we we attempt to escape from pain using good theology. Theology becomes a, a mental workaround of sorts, a way that we convince ourselves that the pain isn't that big of a deal, or the pain doesn't exist or the pain shouldn't exist. We do this with the sovereignty of God all the time in churches like ours. When we experience loss or pain, we say things like, Well, the Lord is sovereign. He brought me to it, He'll bring me through it. He's going to use all this for my good and for His glory. And the thing is, don't get me wrong, all of this is true. All of this is absolutely true. We can hang our hats on every single one of these statements. And, and also, that the sovereignty of God, it, it puts our pain into perspective, into eternal perspective, and into, into the perspective of God's perfect wisdom. Here's what the sovereignty of God doesn't do, though. It doesn't always make our pain less painful, does it? It doesn't necessarily make our pain hurt less. It doesn't, the sovereignty of God, listen to me, the sovereignty of God isn't an inoculation against pain. Two things can be true at once. God is sovereign and pain hurts. Rejoice always, brothers and sisters. Joy isn't merely a means of escape from our pain. Distortion number two, Escape from pain as a prerequisite for joy. Escape from pain as a prerequisite for joy. This is very similar to the the first, but, but has its differences. According to this way of thinking, pain is something that crowds out our capacity to know and to experience joy. So then, before our joy can increase, our pain must first decrease. It's an inverse relationship there. This leads to all kinds of, of unhealthy ways of avoiding our pain or numbing the pain that exists. Not by, a, not by taking it to the Lord and, and dealing with it in a, a healthy, biblical way, but we do things like we, we, we escape and, and, and we numb. We, we do that with food. We do that with shopping. Anything to get that that hit of dopamine, right? The the, the thing that makes us feel good, if only for a few moments, so that we can forget that the pain is there. Maybe it's drugs or alcohol. For some, it's sex and pornography. Others, we work and we work and we work and we work so we don't have to think about the pain. Maybe it's just dissociation by just scrolling And scrolling and scrolling our social media feeds or doom scrolling news headlines or binging our favorite show on Netflix or even a show that's not our favorite on Netflix. And if you're honest with yourself, if you really thought about it, the reason that you let that next episode autoplay is because you're afraid that if you don't, your pain is going to autoplay again instead. You avoid pain through crowded rooms and a crowded calendar. The thinking goes, if if I can surround myself with enough noise and enough busyness, then I, I don't have to be alone with my pain. Some of us avoid or numb pain using time. We say things like, well, one day I'll be able to experience joy. It's just not available to me now. Right? The, the pain is just too palpable. It, it's going to it's gonna have to lessen a bit before I'm, I'm able to go there. Brothers and sisters, rejoice always. Escape from pain isn't a prerequisite for joy. That brings us to distortion number three pain as evidence of the absence of joy. Pain as evidence of the absence of joy. This distortion says, I feel pain, therefore I must not be joyful. Or I'm sad, therefore I must not be joyful. Or, I'm lonely, therefore, I must not be joyful. Or, I feel afraid, therefore, I must not be joyful. Or, I feel any pain or negative emotion, therefore, joy isn't possible. And so what this leads us to is is feelings of guilt or shame simply for feeling pain. Pain, by the way, that you may not have asked for in the first place. Pain, you may not have participated participated in causing. Pain, uh, guilt, and shame that that says, look, I I feel sad right now, but you know what? I I really shouldn't be feeling this way. I must not be trusting God enough. And because I'm sad, I, I must not be joyful either. But again, look, pain hurts. Pain hurts. And the command to rejoice always isn't a prohibition against feeling pain. It's not a prohibition against feeling pain. And in fact, it's an invitation to be joyful in the midst of it. And so then, brothers and sisters, rejoice always. Pain isn't the evidence of the absence of joy. So the the way in which I would summarize all of this is, is like this. Joy is not the avoidance of pain. Joy isn't simply the mere avoidance of pain. And the good news of the gospel isn't that in this life, you and I get to avoid pain. In fact, Jesus promised us something very different. He said, in this world, you will have troubles. He said, they hated me, so they're going to hate you too. Well, Jesus in the gospel gives us hope this morning, gives us the hope of joy this morning, even in the midst of of our pain, even in the midst of difficult times. And in fact, there are glorious gifts that you and I will miss out on if we bypass our pain in an attempt to manufacture something that resembles joy on our own. Because, listen to this, not only does the Lord want to provide joy for you in the midst of your pain, but there are gifts and work that He wants to to give us and and to work in us in the midst of our pain. Are you hurt? The Lord wants to, to give you healing and empower your capacity to move forward from this place of pain. Are you lonely? The Lord wants to invite you this morning into an intimate relationship with Him and with brothers and sisters in Christ who are in the room. Are you sad this morning because you've lost someone or something? The Lord invites you to honor the significance of your loss. He wants to work through your pain not merely help you to avoid it. He wants to give you faith in the face of fear, forgiveness for your guilt, and cleansing for your shame. And if we avoid all of these things that I would would file under the, the umbrella heading of pain then we're going to miss out on this provision. We're going to miss out on these gifts. We're going to miss out on the work of the Lord in our lives. And so it's, it's with this all kind of set up and, and settled, and I, I want to unpack with the time that we have left what it looks like then for us to pursue and to fight for joy in the midst of pain, joy in the midst of difficult times, And look, what what Paul is writing about here when he says, rejoice always, he's not just talking about joy in the midst of pain, but this is at least in part what Paul is talking about. He, He writes, rejoice always. And then in verse 17, he continues saying, pray without ceasing. Now, I don't think Paul is telling us here to pray 24 hours a day without stopping, right? This wouldn't, leave time for, uh, this wouldn't leave time for sleep or anything else in our day for that matter. What I think he's calling us to here is an ongoing awareness of God's presence in our lives. He's calling us to an awareness of our ongoing need and dependency upon his provision. He's calling us to an ongoing prayerful sense of fellowship with and dependence upon Him throughout our day. So if if we're not not walking each and every day with this ongoing sense of fellowship, ongoing sense of God's presence, ongoing awareness of His provision, and an ongoing awareness of our, our desperate need for it all, Enjoy. it's going to elude us. And then, then Paul says this in verse 18. Another audacious imperative here. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And again, all the same questions pop up here, don't they? Give thanks in, in all circumstances? You mean when I've been hurt, when I've been sinned against? Yeah. Give thanks in all circumstances. When I'm sad, give thanks in all circumstances. When I've experienced loss, yes. Give thanks in all circumstances. When I feel alone, yes. Give thanks in all circumstances. The question then is how? How? How could we possibly give thanks to God in all circumstances? What what could we possibly have to give thanks for in the midst of our pain. David writes this in Psalm 4. I think this is really helpful. He says he says this in Psalm 4, beginning in verse 6. He says that there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And then this, you will put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So David writes, that look, there are some out there who, who say to God, God, show us your favor. Give us favorable circumstances worth rejoicing over. Give me something to be joyful about. And while they make their demands, what do we see David doing? He's giving thanks. And I should note that the first half of this psalm is absolutely a lament. A lament that begins with, answer me, Lord. He's been crying out to God, and all he's gotten in return is silence. And yet, David gives thanks. You see, the joy that David has in his heart, it defies circumstance, defies him. And the joy that overflows in David's heart eclipses the joy that these people experience when their pantries and their bank accounts are overflowing. In Philippians 4, Paul gives the same command that we see here in 1 Thessalonians 5. And in this case, he's even more specific. He says in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice always. And then he sticks in the middle there, rejoice in the Lord Always. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, he repeats it, rejoice. It's almost as if he knew we were going to skip over that first one. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Look, just as the Lord did for David, Jesus gives us hope. He gives us the hope of joy, even in the midst of pain. He gives us reason to give thanks even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And when he says this, how is it that we can rejoice always, give thanks in all circumstances? Because the joy that is offered to us in Christ, friends, is a joy that pain and circumstances can't touch. Lastly then, let's get... Let's get really practical. Because I'm not sure we've graduated from, well, that sounds really nice for you, <laughs> right? Like, what does it look like for me today to fight for this joy? Because I feel the pain, right? It, it's, for some of us, it's, it's palpable as we sit here. How do we fight for joy in the midst of pain? Well, three things I, I wanna say here. Number one. We want to look back. We want to look to the past. Because as we look back, as we look to the past, specifically at the finished work of Jesus on the cross, it is there that the hope of our joy is firmly rooted, first and foremost. 1 Peter 1, we read this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter is saying here that while you may be grieved now, for a little while, again, if you zoom out and, and take an eternal perspective, it is a little while. While you may be grieved now for a little while by various trials, because of Jesus' finished work of redemption, he says we're born to a, a, a living hope, and we have an inheritance in him that can't be touched that can't be taken away, that can't be replaced. Peter says that it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, and it's kept safe for us. You can't be touched by anything that you or I experience here on this earth. We're secure in Christ In our inheritance, in our joy, it's secure in him. It's been secured by him in the past through his death and resurrection. And so in this, we rejoice, Peter writes, even as we experience the pain of various trials. And by the way, as we endure, we put on display the genuineness of our faith. Secondly, look to the present. James 1, verses 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's that word joy again, mentioned alongside a nasty word, trials. <laughs> various trials. Trials. And James says, count it all joy, brothers. Count it all joy, sisters, when you face trials. Why? Because here and now, in the present, the Lord is at work in you and me as well. As you endure your trial, your faith is being confirmed as genuine. We saw that in the first Peter passage as well. And James says that something is being produced in you in and through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is steadfastness. And what does steadfastness do? But to build you up in order that when the next trial comes, you are able to stand up under it. And of course, all of this is working to yet, uh, a, a yet greater end, which is your sanctification. You are being perfected. The Lord is using pain and trial and distress in your life to make you more like the Jesus that you worship and that you serve. Being made to look more like Jesus who endured the pain of the ultimate trial on our behalf. Lastly, We fight for joy in difficult times. We want to make sure that we look to the future as well. And this is, this is what the Advent season is all about. We look back and, and we, we remember the first Advent of Jesus and we look forward to the future and we anticipate his second Advent. And as we do, we have this promise that the sufferings of the present time aren't worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed when he comes again. Look, there is a day coming, friends. There is a day coming, brothers and sisters, when Jesus will return and usher in the new heavens and the new earth and everything painful in your life and everything that hurts in your life and everything that's tragic and everything that's sad, all of it will be made to be untrue. all of it will be made to be untrue. And so what do we do now? But we look forward to the future. We fix our eyes on the true and sure hope that Jesus is coming back to do just that work. Look, life in this world with all the pain and the suffering that come with it, it's, it's difficult and, and rejoicing in the midst of it all, it's, it's complicated. And, and honestly, it's, I still maintain, it's kind of like wine tasting. It's like, I, I know it's there because the master sommelier, Jesus told me it was there. The hints of joy. I just, gosh, I just, I don't know that I'm, I'm picking it up. And so what I'm, I'm saying This morning is that sometimes we need to we need to stop and we need to take a moment to do as we read in in Psalm thirty four, which says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. As I was developing this illustration at a leader development night recently. It was Michelle Bennett who came up and said, here's a verse that came to my mind as you were talking about this. Look, What, I, what I'm inviting us to do is we look back, as we look at the present, and as we look to the future, this is what I'm inviting us to do. To stop and to, to taste and to see and to behold The goodness of Jesus, even in the midst of our pain, because brothers and sisters, the hope that we have today and the hope that we celebrate this season is that we don't have to run from pain, but Jesus, he gives us joy in the midst of it. Let's pray. Father, it's a um, it's a humbling truth to mull over. This it's been a humbling, it's been a humbling sermon to preach. Because while I, I, I see. You unpack the magnitude and the significance of the joy that we have offered to us in your presence through Christ. I also, Lord, I know a little bit about the, the pain that's being felt and experienced in the room. I don't know at all. I just, I just know a little bit of it, and Lord, it's, it's significant. And so, Lord, would you help us to be a people who fight for joy, who fight to experience joy even in the midst of our pain. Father, would you remind us we don't have to be afraid of pain. We don't have to run from it. We don't have to escape it or numb it. But, Lord, that you you want to work through it, and you you offer us the hope of joy even in the midst of it. So Lord, would this not just be a a mental exercise where we walk out of here with the knowledge of it? Okay, so joy is is available to me now in my pain. Lord, would we taste and would we see your goodness? And Lord, in the midst of just difficult life in a fallen world, regardless of our circumstances, would we always, Lord, would we always be able to, to pick up the notes of your abundant joy for us. We ask this in Christ Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.